You're about to listen to the 300th episode of Two Riders Sling and Yang, which to me is just absolutely insane. When I started this podcast way back in 2017, it was a lark. Like, podcasts seem kind of cool, and I like talking writing, so why not do this? The first episode starred Howard Bryant, at the time, an ESPN.com columnist, and the intro, <laughs> it was a bit crude. Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. And uh, welcome to my brand new venture. I have no idea. In the years that followed, I added a sponsor and I forced my kids to do these really awkward ads. I still haven't gotten paid, dad. And more than anything, I loved the chance to chat with one fantastic writer after another. I mean, I spoke with Gary Smith via flip phone. I'm not really a devotee of the flip phone either. It just it seems to be the barest the minimum to, uh, to get away with. I ate at a Southern California diner across from Rick Riley. People don't know. Sports Illustrated used to throw the greatest Super Bowl parties. They sort of invented them. Yeah. I went live from Ohio University with Dan Wetzel. Like, you guys must be mandatory attendance, right? Yeah. You guys. <laughs> We've been in your shoes. Man. We've been in your shoes. Otherwise, what the right. hell what are you, are you doing, doing here? <laughs> I spoke with a 17-year-old named Hallie Roberts, whose Arkansas high school refused to publish what she wrote for the student newspaper. She was just saying how we, you know, the district demanded that it be taken down. And, you know, we'll talk more about this when we get back to school. And I got the chance to pick the brains of Grant Wall. I don't know. I mean, check back with me when I'm like 65 and right. see if I'm having trouble connecting with like the 22 year olds. Yeah. But I haven't noticed it being an issue so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And David Clymer. And how long have you been doing the podcast, Jeff? Uh, about two and a half years. So a guy's got to be diagnosed with cancer to get on your podcast. That's a, So it really means a lot to you. That's good to hear. That is correct. It actually takes a cancer diagnosis or at least a heart attack to get on here. So. <laughs> <laughs> and what I want to say from deep, deep down is thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for all the comments and all the reviews. And mostly, thank you for sharing a love of writing. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Sean Powell, the NBA.com writer, the former Newsday columnist, and the original key beat writer for the Miami Herald. This is episode number 300. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Sean. First of all, thank you for doing this. You're actually, believe it or not, you're a bucket list guest for me. I wanted to have you on this podcast for a long time. So I am, uh, I'm very thankful you're here. Thanks for having me, man. I I'm trying to figure out why did you want me for so long? Because you're just freaking great. And you're one of my all-time favorite columnists. And... Yeah, I'm a huge fan. And here's where I want to start. In 1988, you were the Miami Heat, the first Miami Heat beat writer for the Miami Herald. And I love expansion teams. Like, I love expansion teams. And I was, I'm a little younger than you, so I was 16 in 1988. I can name almost that entire roster, top of my head, from my favorite all-time player, Pearl Washington, to Ronnie Cycling and Kevin Edwards and Sylvester Gray and Grant Long. What is it like? To cover an expansion team. Well, first of all, I'm impressed by your knowledge of uh, uh, tossing out Sylvester Gray, dropping Sylvester Gray's name. It <laughs> might be the might be the first time since he left the NBA. So, yeah. props to you, Jeff. Props sure. to you. What was it like? Um, well, I gave an interview to Craig Sager, uh, the late great Craig Sager, on camera, and I said, "You know what? My game story reads the same way every night." <laughs> it says the Miami Heat lost to blank, 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 and whatever. Because they opened the season with uh, 17 straight losses. They were 0-17. The first win was uh, in L.A. against the Clippers. Of course, the Clippers. Uh, but, yeah, it, you know, it, it was, on one hand, the expectations were low. Also, that locker room was fun to deal with because the players were all young. I mean, they, you know, they were just happy to be there. And as a reporter, you're going in there and they're kind of fun to be around. There was really no pressure on them. And uh, this for the city, it was something new. You know, they were just, you know, happy to have basketball. It wasn't a spoiled city. 
Uh, it's not like, you know, really demanding like a Celtics fans or Laker fans because they didn't have any. They're just happy to have basketball. And the other thing for the paper was different because for a long time, Miami was a, a single uh, sports town, just uh, Miami Dolphins. So to have a, an, an, another professional sports team was great. Of course, since then, they've added the Panthers and the uh, and the Marlins. Uh, so it was it was very groundbreaking for the paper, very groundbreaking for the the organization, of course, for the city, and also for me. It was my first time in the big leagues in terms of covering a beat. So I learned a lot about myself and the profession. First ever game: Clippers beat Heat in opener, November 6, nineteen eighty eight. Sean Powell. The NBA didn't just happen inside the Miami Arena Sunday. It detonated. There was a forty minute pregame show, complete with lasers, fireworks, national celebrities, and celebratory pomp. Then the sizzle subsided because for only about four minutes, a game followed. The, the expansion Miami Heat in their franchise opener before a festive sellout crowd of 15,677 allowed the Clippers to enjoy what is certainly one of their biggest victory margins in recent history. The Clippers 111, the Miami Heat 91. Sean, trivia, who led the Heat in scoring in their first game? Okay, I'm going to just go ahead and, and throw out some names here because I'm not totally sure, but it had to be, if it wasn't Ronnie Sykley, uh, Rory Sparrow, Grant, no, Grant, yeah, Grant Long was on that team too. So it had to be one of those three, but of course I'm probably wrong. You are wrong. It was Pearl Washington who came off the bench to score 16. Uh, oh my God. And Pearl Washington, by the way, was a joy, a joy. Now the coach at the time, Ron Rossing, didn't, didn't really like him. Uh, but Pearl Washington was an absolutely joy. The, the, the late Pearl Washington, yeah. Uh, was an absolutely joy to deal with as a reporter because he had all the stories growing up, asphalt legend and New York City, go to Syracuse and everything. But then he flamed out. He didn't keep himself in shape. He didn't pay the price that you had to pay to be a very good basketball player. And, you know, he had a very short time in the NBA because of that. I just want to say it's really funny. You're they lose to the Clippers 111 to uh, 91. Then they lose to the Mavs, then the Spurs, then the Rockets then the Celtics. And they yeah. just go on this crazy losing streak of 17 straight games. You're, is there a moment when you're watching this team and you're thinking they literally may never win a game this year? <laughs> um, well, of course, over 82 games, um, you know they're going to win one. But I think it really became which game would they win? And you sort of circled that one, the second game against the Clippers, not that first one, which was at home. But you sort of circled that second one because the Clippers at that time, you know, Benoit Benjamin was their starting center and Donald Sterling was the owner, Elgin Baylor. They wouldn't, poor Elgin Baylor, you know, he had to work under those circumstances. And uh, so we kind of circled that one, but it was on the road. It was in LA, the old sports arena in LA. And then it just, it just happened. And then after that, Jeff, the, the strange thing is, I believe their second win was against Carl Malone, John Stockton, Utah Jazz. That was the game when AC Green was voted as a starter for the All-Star game ahead of Carl Malone. And the fans at Miami Arena, so they started getting on Carl Malone by yelling AC Green. The entire game. AC Green. <laughs> Wait, I, I feel like you're you're burying the lead here, which is they beat the Jazz 101 to 80. They win three nights later, their second game in a row, beat the Spurs 111-109. And it's like, man, the Heat are rolling. And then they lose 10 in a row. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but, you know, look, I mean, for a team like that, uh, they were built on a couple draft picks and a lot of expansion cast offs from other teams. Yeah. Um, so they didn't obviously didn't have any talent there and they had to get lucky. But over 82 games, you're just going to catch that one established team just has an off night. And here's the other thing, Jeff, a lot of teams when they came to Miami. Oh, they were joy. I mean, they were thrilled. First of all, they're getting away from cold weather. And they're playing in this expansion team. So for them, they're out of South Beach and everything. Michael Jordan, when he came in, he would come in and he would play golf. He'd play golf the day of the game. Sometimes he would even play 36 holes. And then he would drop 55 on the Miami Heat. That's fantastic. You're one of my all-time favorite writers. I really mean that. I think you are just an absolutely beautiful writer. And I want to, I just want to share for people who may not know. All right. This is a story you wrote in 1984. So you were still kind of a newbie in the business. And it was um, for the Dallas Times-Herald. Rest in peace, Dallas Times-Herald. And it was, uh, I was trying to find the first clip I could find from you on newspapers.com. It was, the headline was, Homegrown Yank ranks with the best. And you wrote, Don Mattingly is not a free agent. He didn't arrive with a big contract. So what's he doing with the New York Yankees? On a team patched together by free agency and trades, Mattingly is one of the rare Yankee products from its own minor league system. But judging from Mattingly's success in only his first full season, the Yankees might want to take a harder look in its lower ranks. 
And then here's a piece you wrote about Tim Brown for the Miami Herald 1987. Tim Brown, the, the, the Heisman Trophy winner and future Raider. You could say Tim Brown received his heaven-sent move some Sundays back in the appropriately named Victory Temple Church. During the offering in this soulful place in East Dallas, young Tim would march in line with the congregation toward the altar. But instead of returning to his pew, he dipsy do his way out the door to catch the Dallas Cowboys game on the van radio. And then just the other day, you wrote about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and you wrote, around the NBA, players and coaches have historically embraced stealing or to characterize it a bit more respectfully, copycatting. Many years ago, when gravity-bound players discovered that shots could actually be made by leaping simultaneously, the jump shot replaced the set shot. And you just have this insanely beautiful conversational approach to writing. And I'm not trying to puff your head up too much here, Sean, but where does that come from? Like, how do you learn to write with such a conversational sort of flow? Well, first of all, Jeff, uh, I'm blown away by your admiration for me. So I thank you for that. Uh, the second thing, I mean, you're going to be bringing up articles from when I was 23, 24 years old. I'm embarrassed to read some of those, by the way. Before I go on, I got to tell you a, a story about that Tim Brown story. So I had, you know, he's from Dallas. So I, I went over his 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 house and his mom greeted me at the door. She brought me in, showed me all the pictures and everything and everything like that. It was a great conversation. Great lady, by the way. And then she says, uh, are you single? And I said, uh, yeah. And she says, uh, I want you to meet my daughter. God. <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, I'm not so sure where this interview is going right now. So she, she tried to set me up with Tim Brown's sister. How long have you guys been married for you and Tim Brown's sister? How's that going? <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, I don't know if uh, in, in many interviews you've done that uh, someone tried to set you up, but that was a first for me. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, as far as a conversational tone, um, I think, Jeff, when you're a, a writer and you're a young writer, you're just trying to get your voice, your rhythm, your signature approach, and you try and you fail so many times. You do. And I remember Randy Galloway, the columnist for the Dallas Morning News on a competing paper in Dallas. I was at the Dallas Times-Herald. He says, uh, and, and by the way, Galloway, he's a fantastic guy. Mm -hmm. He says, my man, let me tell you something. Let me give you a bit of advice. He says, write like you talk. And I was like, huh? He said, write like you talk. He says, nobody wants to read a newspaper and they have to go through a, a thesaurus to understand what you're saying, right? Like you talk. And that never left me because you have to understand we're writing for a very broad audience. And I'm not saying, you know, write for third graders or anything like that. Of course, you can write some very colorful words, words that pop off a page. I think everybody should have something like that. But he said, write like you talk. And what he's trying to tell me is you're having a conversation with your readers. Even though there's no back and forth, you're having a conversation with them. The best way to relate to them is to use words and to use phrases that uh, is very conversational in nature. And that's never left me. Okay. I've had this conversation with before with people because this is the eternal riddle for me in writing. Writing like you talk isn't actually writing like you talk though. If you were having a conversation, you put that conversation on paper, it wouldn't read like a column. You know what I mean? Are there tricks to making it sound conversational, even though really in a way it's not conversational? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Jeff. Uh, and it's a riddle, by the way, that some of us spend our entire lives trying to solve. Uh, yeah. As a writer, as you know, you sit down and you write and you write. And I don't know if you're like me, but I labor over every single word, every word I labor over. Is this the right word? Is this the wrong word? Is this the right sentence and whatever? And sometimes I get through it without any blood, you know, self-inflicting wounds. But um, I just look more and more for anything. I just look for, does it flow? Is someone going to stumble over words? Is someone going to stumble over a sentence? You want it to flow. You want it to flow. Uh, I think for me, I'm a, I guess I'm a little, I've always said, Jeff, that I'm just blessed and lucky. Just sometimes things just come to you. You know, I, I would imagine it's, not unlike uh, a lyricist in, in the music industry. Sometimes, you know, you're just up at night thinking, 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 and these things just come to you. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. why I keep a, a notepad and a pencil by my bedside, because sometimes things come to me and I got to stop what I'm doing. I got to write it down and then, and, and then I can use it the other thing. The other thing is I also have a list of words that I keep, words that I stumble upon, maybe in magazine articles or whatever. I say, oh, that's a great word. 
I'm going to try to use that in my next story or maybe three stories out of line, whatever. So I have a list of maybe about 50 to 75 words that are that just pop off the page or phrases. I'm saying, you know what? If there's a chance that I could use this word or use this phrase in the story and it would fit, then I'm just dying to use it. So I just, I, that's the other thing. I collect, some people collect baseball cards. I collect words. First of all, that's the most beautifully nerdy thing I've ever heard. I'm right there with you. <laughs> is there a, is there a favorite word? Do you have a word that you just, your go-to or the word that you just love? Uh, you, you know, I'm sure if, if I thought about it, uh, yes, but that's the other thing, Jeff. I don't want to overuse the word uh, because copywriters pick up on that. Oh, here he goes again, using that word. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, and sometimes you wonder if your readers pick up, oh, that's that word again. He's dropping in there. So I try to stay away from overusage. Uh, but do I try to sneak my favorite words back in time and time again? Absolutely. Two thoughts on this. Number one, my wife always reads every book I write in the editing phase. And she will, a word I use a lot is hence, H-E-N-C. Okay. And my wife, I'll print out the chapters and she'll read them with a pen. And first she'll circle a hence, and then she'll circle a hence with double lines. And a third time she'll write, stop fucking writing hence. <laughs> if you take a draft of my book, you'll see probably 27 henses before you know it gets edited down. And the other thing is, I remember reading a Sports Illustrated when I was in college, and I think it was a Kelly Whiteside piece. And she used the phrase of someone that she said, he knows whereof he speaks. And something about that phrase stuck in my head. And I've probably used that 40 times through the years. It's like, <laughs> I feel what you're saying. Like some words just grab you and they become part of your arsenal. Yeah. I mean, I'll use a word like cheeky. If I'm trying to describe someone who might be a little bit, you know, straddling that, that line, um, uh, maybe uh, barking. Someone's like really yelling at somebody. One phrase I, I use one time is uh, dipped in barbecue sauce. Uh, because again, you get that kind of phrase in there. People kind of know what you're saying. Everybody loves barbecue. So, you know, that, that, that was a shot that was dipped in barbecue so, or whatever it might be. So uh, big mad, if someone's really angry, I'll just say, why don't you just say they're big mad? You know, the, the other thing is, Jeff, is certain words and phrases connect you with the current generation. Like my daughter will use words like maybe in you know, a certain cultural word, hip hop word, whatever it might be that helps you connect with people who are like 30 years younger than you. Uh, because again, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reach so many people from so many different backgrounds and everything, and also know your audience. If I'm writing about basketball, probably the people who are reading about basketball are number one, very liberal in nature because of a lot of black players and everything. So whatever, they're probably in tune with the culture, things like that. Uh, like if you go to the NBA All-Star game, the entertainment's not going to be country and Western. It's going to be hip hop, right? So now I'm saying, okay, my audience knows who Drake is, right? And maybe I'll use like a Drake reference, whatever, just something uh, that will connect you with the audience that you know is reading your story. Okay. Here's a question for you. I'm 50. I think you're 60. I get worried about using words and then looking like I'm trying too hard. Like if I were to just yes. throw no cap in something I wrote, I feel like my re readers would be like, you're, you're 50 years old. What do you, you know, if I, if I, sometimes I interview people and I think I actually, I sort of got like, I'm well-versed in modern hip hop. I have a 16 year old son. We listen to a lot of music. We go to a lot of shows. I feel like if I was talking to a 22 year old and I started making references to J Cole lyrics, I might look more pathetic than intelligent. No. Well, actually, Jeff, I disagree with you. I think you would basically tell your audience how cool you are. First of all, your audience probably has no idea how old you are, number one, because it, it, they just see a name and a byline. That's number one. But number two, I think that they would appreciate that. I think they would appreciate the fact that, you know what? This guy knows and cares enough about us that he's going to speak our language. He's going to speak to us. And I think that's great. I think as a writer, you should always be evolving. You should always be pushing yourself to use certain words, language, ways to connect and things like that. And it, it helps you stay current. That's why some of the some of the most successful musicians, Prince, uh, Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones and everything, they kept pushing their lyrics, their hooks, their rhymes, whatever it might be. They kept pushing it forward. All right. Because that ensured them longevity. And I think the writers got to take that same approach. In uh, 2011, when you were writing for ESPN, you wrote a blistering column headlined, Brian Gumbel should have known better. 
And your lead was, years ago, there was a vibrant and sharp young man, a trailblazer who shook up the sports world, the Obama of his industry. He could not be ignored because his talent and presence were just too obvious. And yet he was also an outcast of sorts, a figure of derision, a punchline of a million jokes. He was Bryant Gumbel, the best broadcaster in the business and the man the black community didn't feel was quote unquote black enough, mainly because he didn't speak quote unquote black enough on the job. Comedians constantly took shots at Gumbel's perceived lack of ethnicity. Almost everyone did, it seemed. So Brian Gumbel basically at this time referred to David Stern, the NBA commissioner at the time, as a you know plantation overseer. And you really took Brian Gumbel to task. Do you worry or have you worried in your career? It's certainly a more diverse field now, but you know, 10 years ago, there weren't a ton still of black voices in sports media, certainly black columnists. Does that come with certain landmines? Do you have to consider twice, three times whether I want to take on another prominent black figure in sports? I would say yes and no. Um, yes, in that I'm very aware of who I am, what I do, and how many people who look like me are in this business. I am definitely aware of that. And I don't take that lightly. But the no part comes in, uh, look, if someone deserves to be thrashed by me for whatever reason, they will be thrashed. And I believe that column was, I think Brian Gumble on his HBO show took uh, David Stern to task about the dress code and a couple other things that were veiled, you know, racism, things like that. But here's the thing, Brian Gumble didn't know David Stern. He's not, he hasn't spent time around David Stern. And I have, and I know David Stern is one of the most progressive white men that I've ever been around. Here's a guy who was just telling young black men, hey, dress respond. Don't we tell young black men that every day? Hey, dress responsibly. You know, uh, people are going to judge you on your color and they're going to reject you for your color. Fine. Don't give me another thing to reject you for. All right. And I didn't see a problem with that. Now, of course, there are other black folks who probably disagree with me. And that's fine. And the one thing about the black community, Jeff, we all don't think alike. We disagree. We have disagreements within the group. We don't have a spokesperson, although we do have a lot of self-appointed spokespeople. But that's a whole different issue. Uh, if you want to know about me, you come to me and I will tell you about me. Don't go to some other black person and tell and ask them about me and how I'm supposed to think, things like that. No, I'll stand up for my own beliefs. Thank you very much. Uh, so I just think with that situation, I said, David Stern's heart is in the right place. I know him. A lot of black players will vouch for him. And you need to know where David Stern is coming. Did Brian Gumbel even pick up the phone and call David Stern first? That's another problem I have in this business. Pick up the phone. You got a problem with someone, pick up the phone, call them. It's not that hard, buddy. You can probably get David Stern the same day. Ask him about this and then get an explanation. And then if you disagree with him, fine, you can disagree with him. But I don't even think he even reached out to David Stern. I just want to say, I think you and I share an old school sensibility on this one that I really think is lacking nowadays, which is if you're going to thrash someone, like call him, send him an email. Yes. And that does not happen nearly as much as it used to. Well, now you've touched another nerve. I think we're in an era now of hot take culture. Mm -hmm. And I really feel for kids coming out of school trying to get into this business when they kind of grew up on people on TV, on the debate shows, screaming back and forth uh, or on the Internet, really just leaning one way or the other. I mean, look, I, we can all throw out names, the Jason Whitlocks of the world, things like that. And they think that that's a way to succeed. What, you know, what they don't see now is people with the boots on the ground doing actual reporting. Jeff, you do a lot of reporting for your books. You talk to a gazillion people to try to get to the truth, right? Yeah. But what we have now in today's quote unquote journalism is hot take artists, people who are making a living and a pretty good living just basically commenting on other people's work. I mean, do they ever leave the studio and go in the locker room? Do they ever do their own reporting on things? No, they don't do that. I think the young 21, 22 year old coming out of college these days has to understand that that's not the way it's quote unquote supposed to work. I went to school. Look, I'm I'm a, I'm an old school journalist, man. I'm, I'm all about getting a bunch of sources. And when I write an opinion, I'm writing an informed opinion an informed opinion where I had to do my own reporting first and then I'm getting an opinion based on that reporting. Nowadays, it's just hot takes, man. It's just hot takes. And, and I cringe. I'm glad I am closer to leaving this business 
than coming into this business. Would you tell people not to enter the business? I would never tell them to, to leave this profession. I actually want more of them to come into the profession, but I want them to come into the profession with the right ideas, the right way to go about a job. I think facts matter more now than ever, ever before, Jeff. Come on, we see how, you know, the discourse in this country is formed by people getting half-truths, flat-out lies. Things are not even in the right context. To me, it just, it is absolutely crazy. People getting their news from the, from Twitter, from Facebook, from Instagram. What happened to a newspaper? You don't read the New York Times. My own daughter, she's got, uh, she graduated from Baylor in three years, got her master's degree from University of Georgia. She don't even read the paper every day. Oh. I said, you should be reading the New York Times every day. And she's smart. Yeah. But she is a reflection of today's society. You know, everything, social media, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it is amazing to me how people can form an opinion on other people, other cultures, politicians, and just the way the country is based on flat out lies, half truths, people with agendas, spreading an agenda, and people forcing you to choose sides. You got to be hard to the left or hard to the right. It is crazy the way news is disseminated today among the public. And look, maybe I'm too old school, Jeff. Maybe I'm wrong, Jeff. Maybe I need to get in line, right? Man, I stick to those principles. Facts matter. Context matters. It should matter to everyone and not just the journalists. In 2008, Newsday laid off 100 writers. And I remember Sean Powell, Jeanette Howard, two of my favorite writers, two of my favorite columnists, both part of that. And I had worked at Newsday um, about five years earlier for a year. I kind of saw, I felt the newspaper sort of changing just in my time there, the the, the transition. And um, you were a star at Newsday. You were a nationally known columnist. And one day the paper's like, yeah, all right, bye. What was that like to go through? Well, I can tell you what it was like to go through from a personal and a professional standpoint. I'll just talk about the professional first. Okay. Uh, Newsday at that time, like a lot of newspapers at that time, they were hurting financially. Uh, classify ads dried up. Uh, the big department stores no longer putting full page ads in. So that part of revenue really just disappeared almost overnight with the Internet coming in. And then also I found them spending less and less money in the sports department. It's tough to have a small budget if you're a New York newspaper for sports. I always said being a sports writer in New York is a lot like being a political writer in Washington, D.C. It's just really where you want to be. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, two teams in every major sport. And then you've got the U.S. Open there every year, golf, all that stuff. So I found myself more and more almost like being a glorified sidebar writer because they started stopped sending you to places, stopped sending you to the Olympics, all those things. And that's not what I signed up for. So then when they started talking about offering buyouts and everything, I said, you know, I'm going to take this buyout and I'm just going to take a leap of faith and see where it leads me. Obviously, no other newspaper there was really hiring that much. And if they did, I probably would have had to take a, a bit of a pay cut and maybe even a lesser job. So I did see where everything was going. Everything was going internet based. And I did some things for ESPN.com. And then the NBA called and they wanted me to be their lead writer and also the promise of doing TV. And whereas I went from doing every sport to just doing a single sport, I think the combination of writing for an internet would no longer did I have to worry about the length of my articles and things like that. And also to do TV, I couldn't pass up that combination, that opportunity. And I've been here pretty much ever since with the exception of leaving for a place called Sports on Earth. It's been a trade-off because, Jeff, I don't think you're going to see a lot of people with my background. And by that, I mean, I've covered golf, tennis, basketball, college and pro, Super Bowls, uh, Final Fours. I mean, I can go Olympics. We're in an age now of specialization. You know, the outlets, the media outlets just want you to do one thing. And I don't think a lot of people coming into journalism, sports journalism business today are going to be able to do what I've done. McDonald's high school, All-American game, NCAA lacrosse, just a whole diverse range of sports that I was able to do because I worked in the golden age of sport. From a personal standpoint, the change is I had to move from New York to Atlanta. And I loved living in New York. I lived in Montclair. New Jersey, which was very, was great because of the diversity there. Uh, everybody was very open-minded. You had blacks, whites living amongst each other. We, all, our kids all went to the, to the same schools and everything. So I did like that, that part, but I had to uh, pick up and move to Atlanta 
where Turner Sports is located, where NBA TV is located. I read an interview from a bunch of years ago and someone asked you, it was with you, someone said, do you have an ethical and moral axis you grind? And your answer was yes. I find it a joke that a lot of columnists have a conflict of interest. By that, some of us become friends with the people we write about. We have a buddy list. I like this coach or this GM or this player. And then we have an enemy list. I can't stand this coach or player. We have buddy and enemy list. And you got to be kidding me. We're paid to be objective. We can't afford to have lists. And I was wondering, like going from writing, working for a newspaper and then Sports on Earth to working for the NBA. And even though there is editorial independence, you are still employed by the National Basketball Association. Was that a mental, professional adjustment that you are now working for the league you are covering to a degree? Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that you asked me that question. Do I wrestle with that? Yes, I wrestle with that. Uh, have there been situations where I've written something and they just flat out rejected it? Only one time. Only one time. Now, think about it. Of all the articles I've been able to write, I, they basically say, hey, man, write what you want to write. Well, write what you need to write. If I have to be critical of a player or a coach or a team, I have the green light to do that. I'm not so sure I would have the green light to do it if it was Adam Silver, but I haven't found Adam Silver to be in a position where I have had to be critical of him. So maybe I'll cross that when I get there. Of course, you're going to ask me, well, what was that one story you wrote? <laughs> you are correct. Okay, so there was... I just want to say, <laughs> clearly you and I think exactly the same, because in my head, I literally had that question on load. <laughs> well, there was a... Um, public relations guy in Detroit during the bad boy era's name, Matt Dobick. I don't know if you ever dealt with Matt, but he rose up to be, be a vice president and everything. And Matt was like, his whole life revolved around the Pistons, Isaiah, Dumars, whatever. He, I mean, he would, he would stomp out all the fires. You know, he was good liaison. He was very close to Chuck Daly. Chuck Daly saw him as a son. Isaiah saw him as a brother, whatever. Well, the Pistons were owned by Bill Davidson. And Bill Davidson died. His his widow took over for about a year and a half while she looked for a new buyer. Well, in that year and a half, they fired Matt. Matt just really went off. I mean, he just had a really tough time with it. Mental health issues, things like that, because his, his whole life was wrapped up in the job. Long story short, Matt committed suicide. And I went and I talked with his brothers, you know, his mom, all the pistons and everything. And I wrote this unbelievable story about how how he loved the Pistons too much, basically. That was sort of the title of the story. He loved the Pistons too much. And the NBA was like, well, no, I shouldn't say the NBA. Uh, a lot of people on the inside thought it was a good story. We should run and everything. And I don't know what happened after that. But then they got word that said, ah, we probably can't write this. And I don't know if it was the mental health aspect, what was the suicide aspect, or was the fact that maybe it hit the too close at home with the Pistons. Well, since then, the Pistons changed hands. Actually, the new ownership honors Matt by naming the press room after him. I thought we should have run it, particularly with the NBA and the mental health, being advocates of mental health. You talked to Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, uh, all those players who will talk openly about that sort of thing. I thought that this was right in line, but for whatever reason, they decided not to run it, and I haven't pushed it since. Good sports on earth have worked. Um, it could have worked if Major League Baseball, which basically uh, funded the entire operation, was willing to see it through its financial issues. They gave it three years and it ended up being a little less than that. It was one of, if not the best place I've ever worked in terms of being a writer. Mm -hmm. because you could write. It was a writer's website. Chuck Culpepper was a writer there. And, you know, Chuck is this all-time fantastic writer. I mean, just amazingly brilliant. Uh, Joe Posnanski was the baseball writer there. Just, again, you're talking about just, you know, we just had tons of writers. And they told me, they said, Sean, we need to do the NBA. But then they said, hey, if uh, you come up with a story on something else, you can do that too. And I'm like, man, you are talking my language. You are talking my language. So I did a story on the lack of black baseball players in major leagues, but I didn't just do that whole ordinary type drawn out story about why they're not in there. I went to an HBC, the best baseball team among historically black college and university. That was Winston-Salem State. They looked like a lacrosse team. They had one black player on the team, one black player. The coach was white. 
And I talked to the white players and everything. And they're like, hey, man, we walk around campus, man. We're, we're celebrities. We're celebrities. And, and the black students come to me. Oh, you must be playing for the baseball team. And I said, you guys must finally know what it's like for a black student to go to Stanford, to go to Harvard, to go to major white colleges. And he said, yeah, yep, you know. He says, but the black students, we've never heard or seen one drop of racism from the black students. Think about that, Jeff. Think about that. Not one. Yeah. Not one. So I love doing that story about how the HBCU baseball teams were mostly largely white. And that's one reason why you're not getting that many black players coming up to the majors. And then the other story I did that I kind of liked, I talked to Pete Maravich's two sons who were struggling years after his death. And then the 20 year anniversary of the fan man fight. Remember that it was Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield. They were fighting in Las Vegas. And then this paratrooper comes in the middle of the ring. And so I go to talk to Riddick Bowe. He's down and out on his luck in Washington, D.C. He's bitter. He lost all his money. He's blaming his, his agent, all that stuff. I talked to Evander Holyfield. He lost his big house in Atlanta. I, he answered the door like this four-bedroom, two-bath house. I mean, my house is better than his house, right? And he talked about how all those kids he had. He's, he says, my only regret is I didn't have him with one woman and blah, blah, blah. And he, and he was fantastic to deal with. I had to try to find a guy who flew into the ring. And Jeff, I'm going through oh, crazy, just trying to, his background and everything. I'm doing all this reporting and everything. Finally, it leads me to the remotes of Alaska. And I talked to this woman who knew him. He said, Sean, you're about two months too late. He went for a glide in the Alaska wilderness and, and hung himself. Oh, wow. He was unhappy. Yes. So those are the type of stories that we were able to do at Sports on Earth, where it's just like, hey, man, go find the story and go do it. Uh, and I love that place. But you're right. Could it have succeeded? Yes. But they weren't willing to foot the bill necessarily to see it at least for another five, 10 years. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my mother-in-law, Laura. And uh, I have something kind of awkward to tell you. Is this about that Muppet fetish? Um, no. Is my daughter finally leaving you? Praise God? No. So what is it? So, my name isn't Jeff Schwartz. I'm not a neurosurgeon, I don't drive a Beamer, and I don't have a Bethpage membership. My dad wasn't an ambassador to Iceland, and my brother isn't a Nobel Prize winner. What? Are you kidding me? I'm just a lonely sports writer whose podcast is sponsored by Royal Retros, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. But I love your daughter, and I'd do anything to make her happy. I mean that. Anything. Anything in the world. Did you say Royal Retros? Yeah. Can you get me a Phoenix Roadrunners jersey? I really want a blue one. Uh, sure. You've always been like a son to me, Jeff. You've written three of my favorite pieces. Uh, favorite might be the wrong word, but your um, your brother Scott died on 9-11. He worked at the Pentagon. And you've written so beautifully about him through the years. And you wrote um shortly after uh, 9-11 in a piece called uh, Brother Can't Outrun Death. You're a damn. This was one instance where I wished he had the instincts of Emmett Smith, the peripheral vision of Gail Sayers. Spud Webb's ability to soar almost three times his own height and a sudden burst at the finish line like Carl Lewis. Had he possessed all four skills, we'd be sitting here right now, rehashing his amazing dash to destiny and playfully wondering why he never showed anyone this before. You see, I teased him because he wasn't the greatest athlete. In fact, I always reminded my brother that he wasn't quick enough to beat his brother out of the womb. His identical twin, Art, squeezed ahead of him in the first official race of their lives. Minutes later, their mother gave birth to a backfield. Scott grew up, grew healthy, and yet when it came to sports, remained a kid, both in his approach and, unfortunately, his ability. He loved to take his turn with the wiffle ball bat, no matter how often he whiffed, which was plenty. He played football in the backyard, always steering clear of the big old oak tree, and never forgetting that any contact with the hedges meant he was out of bounds. Still, he was easy to tackle from behind and tough to throw to when you had to score before dinner. And basketball, I mean, it was a little painful and a lot funny to see him put the ball through the hoop. A field goal is what they call it. And yet he stood a better chance of kicking one than swishing one. So very early, it was evident that Scott wasn't going to be Scott Skiles or Scott Stevens or Jake Scott, not even Dennis Scott. He picked quickly around age 12. Give him credit for recognizing his limits and us for constantly riding him about them. As it turns out, we weren't looking in the right place. And you wrote about how he became passionate and his passion for music. And then you wrote about sort of him him dying in the Pentagon. 
And you've written about him on multiple occasions through the years. Again, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully. When you go through a tragedy like that, does writing about it, is it more painful or is it more sort of cathartic? And what does that do for you? Well, um, I remember vividly that day, I drove from um, New Jersey where I was living down to Washington, D.C. to just to comfort my mom. And then when that night, uh, when I went to my room, I did what writers do. You open your computer and you start writing. And I had a feeling about this before, but it confirmed it then. As writers, we are our most eloquent when we write something that's personal to us because we don't struggle with our feelings. We don't struggle with the sentences and words and things like that. It kind of flows naturally. You're going off emotion. You're going off your history with this person or that person or this thing or whatever it might be. And a lot of things just come natural. Some things just write itself. And I remember just sitting down and just and just writing and never really stumbling. And just you're writing, a word becomes a sentence, two sentences, three sentences become a paragraph. And 15, 20 paragraphs becomes a story. And you're not thinking about anything. It's just sort of comes natural to you. And you know, Jeff, I would imagine it'd be the same thing if you wrote about your kids, you wrote about your wife. You wrote about your other extension of your family, whatever it might be. But when you are largely affected by someone or something, it really even becomes easier. And, uh, you know, since then, I kind of wrote about the last perfect day. Last perfect day was September 10th, 2001, because the reason why that day was perfect is because my brother was alive. A lot of things changed on September 11th, security, going to the airport, things we just took for granted. All of a sudden, those freedoms were sort of taken away from us. So September 10th was the last perfect day. And yeah, you're right. I've written about it a few times since then, uh, the 20th anniversary, those sort of things. And each time, look, with the passage of time, you, you ache maybe a teeny weeny less, but you still ache. And it still comes easier to you because of the subject matter and your relationship with the subject. I want to say you wrote this piece called Remembering the Best Day I Ever Had. Uh, September 9th, 2011 for ESPN.com. And one thing you wrote is, that's the thing about horrible events in your life. You vividly remember where you were and what you were doing when they came along and put a grapefruit in your throat. Doesn't matter if it happened yesterday or 10 years ago. It could have been personal as in the passing of a family member or public when Katrina blew through New Orleans. The last time my ability to recall was this Jinsu Sharp pre 9-11 was when Magic Johnson told the world why he had to retire. Older folks have already freeze-framed even harder punches, the Kennedy and Lennon assassinations, and when MLK took a few steps on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. These events all have a cruel way of yanking you back and making you, forcing you to, remember everything in great and harrowing detail when all you want to do, quite honestly, is forget. That's what makes September 10th, 2001, also known as the last best day we ever had, so tremendously satisfying to reflect on, because I can't remember a damn thing about it. That's one of the best columns I've ever read. That is just one of the best columns I've ever read. I read it last night. It's so ridiculously good. Do you know when you wrote something that's really good? Like when you're done writing something, you're like, I just nailed that. I know that's really good. Um, I probably say yes and no, Jeff. Uh, and by the way, thank you for, um, you know, bringing up these stories and allowing me to talk about my brother again. I want to thank you for that. Um I would say yes and no, Jeff. I, I think all of us as writers, we know when we finish something, we're like, ah, this is actually pretty good, you know? But again, we still have to get that that final confirmation. That final confirmation, well, actually two. Number one, it's got to get past our editors. And then number two, what does the public feel? Because it's like a musician. You could write a song that you think is outstanding and everything. Oh, this is great. And then it doesn't sell. And you don't get that confirmation. As an author, Jeff, the same thing. Although you really haven't written a bad book yet. I wish that were true. <laughs> hey, man, I love the Barry Bonds book. So even don't even go there. So right, I love that you. one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that we all know when we've written something that ah, this is pretty good. And, and maybe our batting average in that sense is actually going to be pretty good. I think, you know, as a writer, you know, when you've done something pretty well. And then you, I think you also know when you've Ah, this stinks, but you know, I got to turn this in. And by the way, I try not to do that. Uh, when it's, when I have to start mailing things in, it's time for me to get out of this business. I refuse, refuse to go down that path. I think I've set a standard for myself. I owe it to my readers. I owe it to my, the people who are paying me. And you know what? I owe it to myself 
to give the best that I can every single article. Does that mean they're all going to turn out great? No, but I owe it to myself to give the best that I can every time I open this computer. That really speaks to me. I have, um, I've written some shitty stuff, you know, I've written some probably not shitty stuff. I've never mailed in a story. Like I've never in my life been like, eh, it's, I don't care. Never. Not one time. I really haven't. And I think if you talk to, I don't know, I just think if you talk to writers who have had a sustained career, most of them haven't mailed in stories. I just don't think you can do it. This is my 40th year in the business, 40th year. And I owe a lot of it to luck being in the right place at the right time. I owe a lot of it to people who I've looked up to for advice and they've given me great advice. But at the same time, I think I also owe it to the fact that I'm not on autopilot, uh, that, that I feel that every time I go out, particularly if they're paying me to be on the road, I just owe it to them to give the best that I can. They know that I'm going to I'm going to try my best. Even at this age, after so many years in the business, they know that, you know, hey, man, I'm going to give you my best. And the thing about it, Jeff, as you know, this as a writer, we make a lot of sacrifices. We spend so much time away from our families and everything for our reporting and our writing and things like that. What it has to be worthwhile. If I'm going to do a lot of sacrificing, Jeff, that, that, that story better be pretty, pretty good, you know, because otherwise, why do it? Why do it? You're on this podcast. Therefore, I'm required to ask a question. I ask every guest in the course of your now lengthy career. What is the best confrontation you've had with a coach, a player, someone? I'm on the road with the, with the Miami Heat team, and I'm walking into the Spurs locker room before the game to talk to David Robinson. And when you walk in a locker room, this is partition here, so you know, nobody can see you at first. And I opened the door, and as soon as I walked in the door, that partition hit me from the rest of the locker room. But I hear the voice of Vernon Maxwell, and I hear him say, yeah, if that fucking Sean Powell comes in here, I'm going to kick his fucking ass. Now, hold on a second, Jeff. There's that partition there. I take three more steps. <laughs> and then Vernon Maxwell would see me, right? So I do take three more steps. And I just head over to David Robinson, who... I answered a couple of questions and I walked out unscathed. And I later found out that Vernon Maxwell was going to beat me up because he thought I wrote a story about him when he was at the University of Florida. I believe he got suspended for marijuana or something like that. But I wasn't a college uh, basketball writer. It was somebody else wrote it. So it was a case of mistaken identity. And by the way, Vernon and I to this day, we're cool. <laughs> no punches thrown. It was a case of mistaken identity. But um, I think early in the business, when I was a stupid writer and I didn't really, I made mistakes, Jeff. You know, I really wasn't, I was just finding my way. So even in Miami, like Ronnie Cycli was unhappy with me a couple of times. And, you know, he wanted to, probably wanted to beat me up. But again, these people who I've had confrontations with, Jeff, and there haven't been a lot of them. We've more than made peace. I see them today. We're good. You know, we talk and we laugh and things like that. When you're in this business, in inevitably, you're going to write something that people aren't going to like. I, I mean, it's probably called doing your job, Jeff, you know, because not everybody's perfect. And so you're you're portraying them as le being less than perfect. Right. And they don't want you to do that. They don't want you to write like that. Uh, I'm not a PR person, Jeff. I'm a, I'm a reporter. I'm a writer. There are a lot of people in the business nowadays. They're PR people. They carry the water for athletes and everything. And you know why they do that, Jeff? It's because of access. Access has become so hard to get these days that, that you have writers who will basically abandon their principles, abandon their objectivity, and basically carry the water for certain athletes, certain star athletes. They do that because otherwise, so-and-so is not going to give me a one-on-one -on -one interview. Well, I don't give a goddamn about the one-on-one -on -one interview. You know who I, what I owe them? I owe them fairness. And I'm more than fair with a lot of athletes. I have no problem. But I owe the readers the truth, Jeff. I owe the readers the truth. I feel like for me, one of my great liberations as a journalist was when I realized the athletes are no more important than me or you. I stopped tiptoeing in. I stopped being nervous around them. I stopped thinking they were sort of gods or greater or whatever. And I realized that they go to the bathroom too. They have their issues too. And while I'm covering them, they're not covering me and they're great at what they do. They're no more, their time is no more important than my time. And I just think like there was a real, I don't idolize athletes. I don't kneel before athletes. They're people just like me. And I feel like that really improved my coverage, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And it improves your outlook. And, and let me just stress this, Jeff. First of all, I appreciate an athlete and how he got to the top of his profession. Do you know how hard that is to do? How hard that is to do? I respect the hell out of that. 
respect the hell out of that. And most of the athletes who I come across, they're good people, Jeff. They're good people. And I have have 99.9% of my interaction with athletes has been nothing but positive. Nothing but positive. But at the same time, they're positive because I'm professional. They're not positive because I'm kissing ass. They're positive because I'm professional. And by the way, if you walk in a locker room and you're kissing someone's ass all the time, his teammates will look at that. And, and, And they're not happy, you know, because now they can't talk around you. You see what I'm saying? They can't talk around you because, oh, you know, so-and-so, that's his guy. So he's going to go back. They can't talk around you. They can't be candid with you. They can't be honest with you because they're afraid of you. I want to be able to walk in a locker room and be able to talk to anybody with no conflicts, Jeff. It's it's imperative. That's the way you can do your job. Let me ask you a final, final, final question. You've covered uh, sports for a long time. I don't usually ask many sports questions on this thing, but I'll ask you this. When all is said and done, who are we going to say was the greater NBA player, LeBron or Jordan? Ah, I knew that was coming up. Here's my answer, and I'm not weaseling out. The best basketball player from the time he picked up a basketball until the time he put it down, that's Kareem. I mean, think about it. High school, he lost like two games at Power Memorial High School. College, did they even lose a game? He didn't lose a game? Oh, okay, Elvin Hayes, I think he lost right. a game. Yeah. yeah. And then the NBA. So from the time he picked it up to the time he put the basketball down, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The player who's had the best NBA career, that's LeBron James. That's LeBron James. Think about everything he's been able to do. He's going to break the all-time scoring list, top four and all-time in assists, uh, probably be top 10 in steals. I mean, LeBron James, my God, LeBron, look what he's doing. 20th year in the NBA, age 38. But the greatest basketball player ever, that's Michael Jordan. That's Michael Jordan. He's the greatest player ever. First of all, 10 straight years as a scoring champion. One year, he's a scoring champion. and uh, defensive player of the year, finals MVPs, overall MVP. You could argue Jordan could have won the MVP like eight straight years. You could argue. Uh, 6-0 and in the NBA finals. Michael Jordan is the greatest player who ever lived. But again, LeBron James will have all the records and everything. But was he a greater player than Michael Jordan? In my opinion, no. It's, remember Sandy Koufax? Sandy Koufax did not have a long career as a pitcher. But Sandy Koufax was awfully good. You had other guys who were like Kurt Schilling had a longer career as a pitcher than, than Sandy Koufax. Does that make him a better pitcher than Sandy Koufax? No. Longevity does mean something. It also means that you've taken advantage of your era of nutrition, of travel, of a lot of different things that maybe the other players didn't have. The other players didn't do this uh, load management stuff. Michael Jordan showed up to play every game and he took three years off. He retired for, what, two of them? And another year and a half, he went to go play baseball. Imagine if he got those years. Imagine if Kareem did not go to college and he went straight to the NBA. That scoring record would be out of reach. So you have to compare the players according to their era. So that's my answer. Kareem, LeBron, and Michael, they all share something. And it's this so-called greatest whatever, whatever, ever. You know, somewhere out there right now, Sylvester Gray is very upset that you did not include him on that list. (laughs) Well, Sean, listen, obviously, huge fan, huge admirer of your work, huge admirer of your career. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for for appearing. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you, Jeff, and continued success in your great career. I want to thank today's guest, Sean Powell, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Powell2DubPeople. And check out his work at NBA.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd really be grateful. Music is by the always great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.